0: Good morning, Bethel. You know, the whole world sings songs, um, but we have the best. Uh, The Lord tells us that he inhabits the praise of his people. We're not just singing a song. There is something that we do here that participates with the movement of the Spirit of God and his people, and that is a sweet thing. I'm thankful for our worship team and uh, their diligent work to prepare uh, the the music and to uh, coordinate with one another uh, that we can worship together. Pastor Josh, thank you. Uh, thank you to the rest of the team. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our passage. Father, we ought to be thankful of all people in all times and all places Uh, we should be incredibly thankful. Not just because there's a holiday on our calendar, but because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because our eternal destination has been changed from its default, which was against you, away from you, separated from you, in the eternal punishment of hell because of what we deserve, because of our sin and rebellion. But our eternal position has been changed because of Christ Jesus. And we are now those who will be seated with him in the heavenlies. Who will rejoice in worshiping him for all time. Who will be used to rule and reign by him over this world when things are all as they should be. So we are thankful, Lord, not just because we have stuff. But because we're yours your possession, your bride, your children, your people, your church. And yet on top of that, you have lavished upon us all the things that we need. And we have sung a fairly simple song this morning to recall that to mind. So Lord, we're thankful. And yet uh, the word is too thin. I pray that you would lead us now as we go to your word, that we would learn more about you and who you are and what you're doing in this world and what you're doing with us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us from your word. Eliminate the truths and drive them deep into our hearts. That we might live them out for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, we're cruising along in our series uh, through Matthew's gospel titled King Jesus. King Jesus. And we've, we've really uh, highlighted throughout the gospel how Matthew is carefully showing us how Jesus fits into the expectation of Messiah, fulfilling prophecy, showing him again and again to be king. King Jesus. Not just a teacher, not just a good man, not just a miracle worker, not just a prophet, but a king, a reigning king. And uh, that's where we have been. We've got about another six weeks or so, and then we will um, wrap up the book. Uh, During my many years... Uh, or many years ago, I should say, during my undergraduate at Biola University, I had to take an art appreciation class. Anybody ever ever had to take one of those? Yeah? (laughs) The only one that worked for my schedule uh, was unfortunately an evening class. And it started at 7 o'clock at night and it went to like 9.40. And this is, you know, after dinner, obviously. And a dinner which I usually... Capped off with a a cone of the all you can eat, you know, soft serve ice cream from the little dispenser, which was a bit of a problem for me. I still like a soft serve. But I would have dinner and I would frequently have this ice cream and then I would go off to the class and the professor would lecture for about an hour. Okay, I can do that. But then he would turn the lights off and begin to show pictures of what he was trying to teach and illustrate for us. At night, right, after dinner, After the ice cream, after an hour lecture, with the lights off, (laughs) I can tell you there were many evenings where I appreciated the artistry of the inside of my eyelids, and that's about all I could could muster. And I really liked the class. I liked the professor. I liked the subject. Uh, I've always been interested in art and beauty. I think it's a fascinating discussion to simply ask, why is it that we find something to be beautiful? And why is it that we differ from one another? Why do we even have a sense within us that there is something that's beautiful, right? These are some interesting questions. And one of the things that kind of came out in the class to sort of address some of those issues was the discussion about composition. Maybe you remember this. Maybe this is a word. Some of you are twitching a little bit like, yeah, I do remember that. Um, Composition of a piece of art considers things like line and shape and value and texture arrangement. Uh, Through composition, the artist attempts to draw our eye to something against the other things. It tries to highlight one thing over another. It tries to create a mood or even evoke in us a certain kind of response. And they strive for this through the order and the arrangement and the composition of a piece of art. And I was thinking, this came to mind this week as I was studying because as, as your pastor and as a teacher, I get to sit down each week and study through the scriptures, not just for academic or technical information, but one of the things that I get to regularly appreciate in the scriptures is its beauty, its order, its arrangement, its composition. It is a work of art. And the more I study and the more time I spend in the scriptures, the more beautiful it becomes not just as an artifact in and of itself. It is certainly that. It is beautiful uh, in, its, in itself and how it's arranged, but it also attempts to bring order and beauty to our lives. It tries to compose us in a fashion that honors and pleases the Lord. Uh, there is a great passage in Ephesians that says that we are a masterpiece, that we are a piece of art that we are a workmanship the handiwork of God himself Uh, in Ephesians 2 10 for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do which is quite a thought to think about all the days of our lives sort of being ordained for us and that there are good good works opportunities just sitting out there like ripe fruit that God means for us to take hold of In this week's study of our text, in Matthew 26, uh, verses 1 through 16, there is a striking feature of composition, and that's why I start there. Uh, There is a way that Matthew has arranged his material to draw our eye, to capture our attention, to fix our hearts on something very beautiful in the text. Like an artist painting a picture with a certain kind of composition, Matthew is being very intentional in how he has structured his material to capture something for us. And it is this very beautiful moment where Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus with oil just prior to his death. Uh, And so we're going to look at that. If you would, um, Matthew 26, verse 1. And the first point here is that Matthew composes a backdrop of darkness. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, that referring to the Olivet Discourse, which we've been through, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in that palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or... There may be a riot among the people. Now, what I notice in this opening paragraph here is that in every line, virtually every sentence, certainly every verse, there is an element of darkness that is sort of put out there. And we're going to find it again at the end of our section. And so we find these brackets of darkness, sort of a canvas on which... Matthew paints this beautiful picture of the anointing of Jesus here. First, The first element of darkness that we see is reference to the Passover itself. The Passover has elements of both light and dark to it. Uh, if you'll remember, the Passover celebration recalls, it looks back to uh, a period of time where Israel was in bondage in Egypt for 400 years of slavery, and they cried out to the Lord, And their distress, and God heard their prayer, and He sends Moses as His servant to deliver them from Pharaoh's hand. And if you'll remember, Pharaoh was reluctant to let them go. Initially, it was his hard heart that held on to them. And eventually, it was God who hardened his heart. An interesting study how that happens. First, it was his own will that clenched them tightly. And then finally, it was as though God said, I'm going to punish you in your will. And I'm going to make sure that your hardness of heart stays fixed in this way so that I can demonstrate my glory through you. And he sends uh, 10 plagues upon Egypt, uh, if you'll remember this. It, it is this and and these, these plagues are not just random this is not just a series of unfortunate events, okay? They were 10 specific plagues, each one targeting a false deity of a polytheistic nation. And it, and I, I kind of think about it in my mind's eye. It's almost like I imagine Pharaoh with this grip on God's people and God just one at a time prying his fingers loose. 10 plagues, 10 fingers to take his people out. And... Um, The Passover itself recalls specifically the tenth and the final uh, plague that was brought on Egypt and all there, and that was the death of the firstborn. Uh, The most awful, um, the darkest. The Bible says that at midnight, God struck down all of the firstborn of Egypt except for those who obeyed the Lord by sacrificing a lamb and taking the blood and placing it on the door frames of their houses. And if they did so, by that token of faith, then the Lord would pass over that house and his judgment would not fall and that, uh, the firstborn of that home would not be put to death. And so after God had freed Israel from slavery through this tenth dark and deadly plague, from that point on, Israel was to commemorate that passing over. And so they celebrated this feast annually by killing a lamb, And eating it in haste, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, all by way of remembering God's deliverance and their escape. There's something really fitting about the fact that the crucifixion of Christ, that his sacrifice would occur right during the season of Passover. Uh, It's fitting because just as the Passover looked back to God's deliverance of Egypt or of, of Israel from Egypt. It also looks forward to God's ultimate deliverance of his people from the penalty and the consequences of sin. Jesus is our Passover lamb. This incident in Israel's past was ultimately a forward-looking pre- uh, preparation kind of thing for God's people that they might recognize the ministry of Messiah when he came. And so if you think about it, even when John the Baptist first uh, observed him and And saw Jesus, he cried out, What? Behold the the Lamb of God. It wasn't just a reference to look at that guy. He's kind of pasty and he looks weak. It was, This is the one that God has provided to be a sacrifice for mankind's sin so that God's judgment would pass over those who trust in him. He's our Passover Lamb. But even this celebration of Passover, while it is celebratory, it's a mixture of darkness and light. It was celebrated at night. It remembered and foretold deliverance through death. There was dark and light intermixed in this holiday itself. Secondly, we see a reference to the crucifixion, which I would call the darkest kind of death. Verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is one of those statements in the Scripture that mathematically doesn't really add up if you understand the value of each word or each phrase that's being used here. Uh, Messiah or son of man, this title that Jesus claimed for himself here, Messiah is supposed to be victorious. The son of man is victorious. This was one of Jesus' favorite ascriptions, favorite identities that he, he applied to himself when he referenced himself with son of man. And he is referring back to something that the prophet Daniel foretold. So let me, let me read this passage to you from Daniel chapter 7. This is where the title Son of Man comes from. And you'll understand my point here. Daniel seven thirteen. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is the picture and title, Son of Man. That is the title that Jesus has ascribed to himself and regularly identifies himself as. And now, he says here to his disciples, in a couple of days, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. You see, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. The equation doesn't balance out. How can Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man be this, and yet Jesus' declaration be this? The the two are incongruent. Also, the the term crucified, I think, is almost lost on our modern ears. When we hear of crucifixion, we tend to think of deliverance of sin. We think of crosses as jewelry, right? Right? We think of the cross and we think of songs and worship. Uh, We decorate with the crucifix. The the cross is a beautiful emblem of Christianity that we cherish. Cathedrals are built in the shape of a cross. But the crucifixion in the ears and minds of the disciples was nothing more than a means of execution. Imagine someday some people singing songs about electric chairs and guillotines. That's what's happening. I don't mean to be sacrilegious here. I'm just saying the cross in our ears is glorious. The cross in their ears was ugly. The crucifixion that he foretold here was simply a gory, painful, shameful means of execution. In fact, crucifixion was such an ugly and shameful way to die that it was reserved for the worst of criminals. A Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. It was beneath them. But it was the way that our Lord was killed. And so again, to the ears of the disciples, Jesus is announcing the failure of his mission. Not its success. That's what they're hearing. We thought he was the Messiah, the Son of Man, going on to victory and authority and triumph. And instead he's telling us he's going to his death and a shameful one at that. So what I mean for you to see is that this darkness continues to be painted in Matthew's composition here. We keep seeing these these elements. Laid out here. And the final one is this a conspiracy is portrayed. Uh, This sort of deepens the the dark value of what's going on here in Matthew's composition. Uh, Because of the backdrop of Passover and the looming crucifixion, now we have this disgraceful conspiracy where Jesus will be handed over. It's especially dark, I think, because of the ones who will be conspiring together. Who is it? It's the religious leaders. The people who have been appointed to direct the people's hearts to the Lord and to teach the people about who the Lord is have missed the Lord in their presence and are conspiring to, in fact, kill the one who has been sent of God. And, and they, they do it even in a covert fashion. They know that Jesus is popular with the people, so they're going to do this on the sly. There's a Latin phrase that says corruptio optimae pessima." which means the corruption of the best is the worst. There's something especially dark here. And so what I, what I want to show you this, and you're all going, thanks for painting this darkness. Eric, don't you know we're heading into the winter here? we got to get the canvas right so we can see the beautiful moment that Jesus paints on this canvas. We see all of this darkness in the, in the crucifixion portrayed, in the conspiracy in the Passover and what it referenced. But against this, there is a beautiful moment of light. Look at verse 6 with me. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold At a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Uh, Let me start by saying, um, I don't think we have any contemporary equivalent of what is occurring here. I I, I try to regularly draw a contrast from modern day to to the ancient world. I I know of like none. There's nothing that equates to this particular uh, incident, nothing that is so honoring, that is so intimate, that is so extravagant, and I hope to show that to you. Uh, it's worth noting here that this is the second anointing of this kind, okay? And I think a lot of people have missed that, and I want to clarify that today. Uh, if you would, in fact, turn your, um, your bulletin handout over on the back, uh, I want to kind of walk through this. Unfortunately, many people have confused this story with an anointing that happened earlier, about a year and a half earlier in Jesus' ministry, uh, an anointing by a sinful woman, most likely a prostitute. Uh, There are some remarkable similarities in the two incidents, uh, but there are also some striking differences that show us certainly that these are two different occasions uh, altogether. So if you kind of look at this chart, we'll walk through this together here. First of all, the, the instance of an anointing by a sinful woman is found in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, indicate the anointing of Mary of Bethany here. And here's how we can see that there are two separate instances, or several different things. First of all, there's the timing. The one in Luke occurs a year and a half before Jesus' crucifixion. The one that we find in the other Gospels here occurs on the final week of his life and ministry, days before his death. The location of the anointing of the sinful woman is in the home or in the region of Capernaum, which is way north, north uh, northern part of Galilee. This is in Bethany, just, just a stone's throw outside of Jerusalem. Very different locations. Uh, secondly, now or thirdly, here, here's where there's a similarity and a difference mixed together. The homeowner of each place is Simon. No wonder we confuse them, right? That's understandable. But Simon is like, as I've said here in the parentheses, Simon is really like Dave. It's just a, it's a very common name. How many Daves do we have here this morning? Can we see your hands? Let's just, let's just count real quick. Right, keep them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We got eight. First service, there was none when I asked that question. <laughs> Those Daves were messing with me. I know for a fact there were two of them in there, and they didn't raise their hands. So it's in the home of a fellow by the name of Simon, but one is Simon the Pharisee, an expert in the law, one who wouldn't get his hands dirty with anything, but the other is Simon the leper. A leper could not be a Pharisee, two very different people, though they have a similar or the same name, It's just like Dave. Then we have the objector. In the Luke account, it's, uh, it's Simon, the, the owner of the home himself, and he's frustrated his objection is specifically, if he was the Messiah, then he would know who this woman is. He would know her reputation. But in the other case, it's the disciples who complain, especially Judas. And the complaint is, why this waste of money? The motivation of the first anointing uh, is an act of confession. And the result is that Jesus forgives her. In the second anointing, it is an anointing of Jesus for burial. That's what Jesus indicates the motivation being. And the result was that Judas was prompted to betray Jesus. So there's some similarities, but there's some big differences. These are two different instances, and that occurs commonly in the Gospels. We have two different temple uh, cleansings. We have two different miraculous catches of fish. We have different feedings of multitudes. And here we have two different anointings of Jesus. Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of John indicates that the anointing of Jesus in his final week was performed by Mary, Mary of Bethany, this good friend Mary. Uh, this was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Uh, and this woman, Mary, is a remarkable person in the Scriptures. If, you, if you're ever interested in maybe changing up your devotional um, approach for a week or a month, just, just do a biographical study on Mary. Follow her in the scriptures and see what she does, just to change it up a little bit. Uh, she is always found at the feet of Jesus. It's interesting. Uh, she's either listening to his teaching in avid discipleship while Martha is busy with other things, or she falls to his feet in worship, even when her brother Lazarus is dead as Jesus comes. Or she is anointing his head and his body and his feet before his death. Uh, she is maybe one of the finest examples of discipleship in the scripture. One who learns, one who worships, one who gives. Uh, she's really a remarkable woman. Well, let's look at the gesture here. This uh, alabaster jar that she brings with her is of great beauty and value. It's, it's an attractive thing in and of itself, but it's worth a ton. Uh, it contained about 12 ounces of very expensive perfume, and I have to just pause here. I'm going to tell you guys a little story um, that's loosely connected. has to do. This isn't the wolf story, by the way, um, but it has to do with my son. I can't tell at first service because too many of his friends are in that service, so you all have to just keep this to yourselves, all right, because he's not here. Aiden is he's down in Anchorage. Actually, he's probably on his way back now, but he was down there for uh, Allstate Cello, and he and a couple of his peers are on their way back. But, you know, we give him some food money for these trips. We, you know, like him to eat a little bit. And uh, we tell him, we say, hey, we'll give you this much. Now, if you're really sparing with your how you handle your money here, you have some leftover, you can use it as mall money. You know, mall money, that's, you know, guilt-free mall money from mom and dad. That's a thing. So that's how we're trying to teach him to be judicious with his resources. So he sends us a text from the mall that he had he had decided to spend it in Tivana, of all places. This is a tea shop. My 15-year-old son's coming home with the tea set. Dad's proud, right? And, and the name of this tea serving set is Sir Sips-A-Lot. <laughs> then he has a little leftover. This is just completely, totally, just taking a, a break from this, the message here for a second. Then he goes, he, he goes into Banana Republic and realizes they have cologne on sale. So he buys a bottle of $12 cologne. I'm a little worried about this. He sends us a message that Sir sips is now smelling good. <laughs> the reason I bring that up, I don't know why, but so, <laughs> the cologne of Sir sips could not be compared to what we find here in this particular... This jar contains 12 ounces of expensive perfume. The Gospel of Mark tells us that it's worth 300 denarii. The denarius is a day's wages. The contents of this alabaster jar are worth 300 days wages. This is not a $12 bottle of cologne. This is a year's salary being poured out in a moment. Okay, That's what I mean for you to see. Uh, Some scholars believe that these were often held as a dowry because of their value. This would be a woman's dowry. Um, In order to release the contents, you didn't just, you know, pop a cork or twist the top. You had to break it. You had to break it open. It could only happen once. And in order for those contents to be uh, poured out. And I think there's remarkable symbolism in that. Just as the alabaster jar had to be broken in order for its lavish and rich gift of grace to be poured out. So Jesus would be broken in order for the lavish grace and mercy of God to be poured out and applied to those who would receive it. Matthew is composing things beautifully here. The contents of the alabaster jar were costly and lavish, just as God's grace was costly and lavish. And whether she knew it or not, her lavish and extravagant and beautiful act of anointing Jesus here very closely intimates God's gesture of lavishly giving us something costly and worth great value to him and to us. It's an amazingly beautiful moment. Um, Now, the act seemed to be so extravagant that in this second anointing of Jesus here, the disciples, especially Judas, are appalled at what they consider to be wasteful. And in contrast, Jesus defends her gesture and he calls it beautiful. Uh, Now, I want to take some time with this word here. Jesus identifies uh, the gesture as beautiful. Some of your translation will translate this simply good, which is a possible way to translate the word kalos here. Uh, But I think the ESV and the NIV have done the best in translating this beautiful because there are other words that simply mean good that are a little more everyday pedestrian words. Uh, Agathos is one of them. And that's not uh, what Jesus uses. He uses the word kalos here because of its overtones of an aesthetic value of something that's not just it's good, it's okay. It's not bad, it's good. But something that's really good. Really special, really sweet. That same word kalos is used as it's used in the Gospel of Matthew and other places is used of the good seed, the good tree which bears good fruit, or the good soil that the good seed fell upon. Those are the other uses of this same word here. So in the same way that you and I might look at soil and we might just see dirt, a farmer might look at really good soil, dark, rich, black soil, and look at it and see That that's beautiful. That's good. That's the right stuff for the occasion. And that's what's happening here. That's the ascription that is given. That's what Jesus calls this woman's act. It's good. It's beautiful. It's fitting. It's the right act for this moment. It's appropriate. It's beautiful. Um, I was thinking about, I was trying to come up with sort of as close as I could a modern day kind of a, A gesture that 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 is similar to this and i've already told you in our culture i can't come up with one in ethiopian culture there is one ceremony that is similar Uh, i've had the privilege to go to ethiopia a number of times and one of the things that they will do for you if you're a guest an honored guest for them is they will uh, perform what's known as a coffee ceremony and doesn't that just sound good a coffee ceremony so they take raw beans and they roast them right there in your presence roasting them right in front of you. And so the room is just filling. It's aromatic. You can smell. I know you guys are starting to, some of you are jonesing right now. You know, I didn't get my cup of coffee this morning. And you can just smell it, fill the room, and you can watch the beans darken, and then they'll crush them right in front of you. And then they pour them into these special pitchers which they heat up and they I I can't even describe it to you, but it's a ceremony of pouring out and and refilling and pouring out and refilling. And the idea is that you have to get the grounds saturated to the point that they will sink down below a certain level that when you turn the special pitcher just so that the grounds will stay below the level of the pouring. And it's a real art. And you watch it performed for you and it has this aromatic uh, scent and it's beautiful to behold and it's an honor and it's quite a gesture. And I was given the first cup from this ceremony, which is a special treat and honor, and it was the best cup of coffee I've ever had in my life. It might have had something to do with where we were and just the roughness of the situation, but it was good. It was beautiful, and it meant a lot to me. And I think it's especially interesting and a little bit surprising that Matthew includes this particular moment in his gospel. That stands out to me as a little bit conspicuous. Um, As you know, we have four gospel writers, and as they sort of pen their testimony about who Jesus was in his life and ministry, they do so in a way that the, the gospel accounts bear their fingerprints. They, they don't lose their personality or their, their nature or their stories uh, as they write about their testimony. Those, those come through. Now, Matthew was, do you remember his occupation? Tax collector, right? He is the mind of an accountant, He's a scholar in the first rite. He has attention for detail and precision. Uh, as, as a Jewish scholar, he's especially concerned about how Jesus fulfills the prophecies looking for Messiah. And he has carefully painted all of those for us, referring back to the Old Testament. But his disposition is one like an academic or an accountant. He has an eye for money and value and cost and detail. And it's just surprising to me that Matthew knowing his makeup, would think that this is an important story for us to hear. Why does he put it here? Let me, let me ask you even, if we didn't have this story, what might we be missing in our understanding of Jesus or of his ministry? It doesn't feel like a lot, does it? It, it seems to be kind of a gratuitous or an unnecessary story, like the story I told about Aiden and his Tivana experience in the Cologne. Now, I might be wrong about this, but I think that Matthew records this story for us because I think he himself was deeply touched by what happened, by what he experienced. I think perhaps this story, this incident, deeply corrected and confronted him in his calculated Pragmatic nature. When he saw something done that was lavish and beautiful and extravagant and over the top, I think it was probably as much his voice among the disciples as the others that in his mind was going, This is a waste. So John tells us that it was Judas who articulates this kind of the loudest and is the most offended by it, but it may be very likely that it was, in fact, Matthew's own voice in his own head saying the same things, if not out loud. I think this confronted him. Uh, There is this great film series that came out a while uh, back. Uh, Probably many of you have heard of it or watched it or maybe you even own it. It's Band of Brothers. Uh, We love this one. And, of course, it's it's about World War II and these army folks that uh, go through this time together. There's a scene in this particular film series where the men come in off the line, and they've been out there for a long time. They've lost uh, many of their brothers in war. They, um, they're fatigued, they're tired, they're grieved. They've been under the constant threat of death and darkness and cold. But for a moment, they're brought into this chapel, and they're sitting all together in, a, in almost strangely at peace because we haven't seen them at rest at, up to this point. And at that same time, there is a collection of sisters, the narrator calls them, who sing for the men. These beautiful women in this warm, light shelter, and it is this moment of sort of glory and beauty and safety and peace and what I would call shalom, and the men take it in and enjoy it. It's gorgeous. And that is a good approximation of what we find in the gospel here. Matthew has painted for us this scene of darkness. But against the darkness, here is this beautiful gesture where Mary pours out this very lavish gift. And what's more is that Jesus gives Mary this incredible honor and affirmation. While others are calling this a gigantic waste, he says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that amazing? what we might think of as kind of a gratuitous incident or something that doesn't really maybe add to the nature of Christ's sacrifice for sins is going to be told of her wherever the gospel is preached. This act of beauty and generosity and extravagance. What's really fascinating to me is that in John's gospel, when he introduces to us Mary of Bethany, he introduces her early in the gospel as the one who had anointed Jesus before he gets on to tell us about the story of that anointing. In other words, what Jesus said that this story would be told wherever the gospel went forward, we see being fulfilled in the gospel of John itself. Her reputation had preceded her. And even if we if you didn't track with me in all of that, 2000 years later, the church in Fairbanks, in Alaska, is talking about a woman who lavishly honored her Lord with an extravagant gift. But Jesus says, will happen, will happen. Now before we get to the application here, I want to, we kind of have to round some things out here. We see that this betrayal of Judas, which occurs here at the end, rounds out the darkness. Again, I've told you that it was, we've got darkness bracketing this beautiful incident here. Verse 14, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. So here again, we see Matthew drawing our attention through his composition to Mary's beautiful and generous act by comparing her generosity and her self-sacrifice with Judas's self-serving betrayal. Uh, the gospel tells us that, uh, and in the gospel of John, especially in chapter 12, tells us that Judas used to keep the money bag for the disciples. And he was a thief and would regularly help himself to it. Uh, and it seems to me that in this particular instance here, we kind of get a sense that Judas saw the writing on the wall. He had already seen the first anointing of Jesus and was put off by that. And maybe thought, hey, that's a one-time thing. I'm still with, you know, Messiah. This is still going to go well for us, so I'll hang with him. But now seeing the second anointing of Jesus, and now hearing that this is going to go forward to crucifixion, it's as though he throws up his hands and says, you know, being paired with Jesus is not going to end up in a lucrative lifestyle for me. And so I'm out. And that is what he does. It seems that this incident was a bit of a tipping point for his true colors to come through. So what's the application for us in these verses? Uh, I'm going to be a little provocative here for you, which is nice. I feel like that's my job sometimes. Uh, The first is this, that God cares for beauty. God cares for beauty. We're sitting here in a conservative Baptist church And that is not something that conservative Baptists talk about much. But let me just challenge you with these thoughts. The temple that Solomon built was beautiful. The second temple was beautiful. The tabernacle itself, where God gave specific instructions as to how it was to be built, was built by skilled artisans and craftsmen, and it was beautiful. And there are elements of beauty within the tabernacle that only God himself could see. They were private uh, aspects of beauty. I don't have have time to go into all of that. I would tell you this. Our world is beautiful. Is it not? You wake up in the morning and you see the snow shining on this fresh snow that we've got. And you see the mountain ranges. You can look look at the grand scale or you can look at one branch and just see the thin dusting of snow. And the light just reflecting off of it and the intricacy of a snowflake. Our world is beautiful. And God did not have to make it so. He could have made a factory, but he made a beautiful world. Uh, And this anointing was not just called good, pedestrian good. Beautiful. So let me just say, God cares about beauty. Secondly, uh, God is honored by our beautiful generosity and sacrifice. If you think about the scriptures, whether it is the lavish gesture of Mary here in Bethany, or of the sinful woman of the first anointing, or whether it was the widow and her last pennies, there is something about an extravagant giving heart that resonates with the heart of God. And I would simply say, has God not been generous with us? Has he not been lavish with us in the giving of his own son? Uh, I love Tim Keller's book titled Prodigal God, if for no other reason because he corrects our thinking about what prodigal means. We tend to think of prodigal referring to one who is rebellious, right? That's not what it originally meant. It's come to mean that. The original meaning of prodigal means one who was wasteful, a spendthrift, one who squanders money. That's why he was the prodigal son, because he took his inheritance and as a prodigal squandered it. That's why he was prodigal. And Tim Keller captures that and says, our God is in the same way, prodigal. Not that he's rebellious, but he is lavish, bordering on a spendthrift in the way he has poured out so much grace for you and me. Our God is honored by beautiful generosity and sacrifice. And finally, God is worthy of our best gifts. Um, God has been incredibly generous with us. Sometimes we're just content to give him the leftovers. But he deserves our best gifts. And I want to close this by reading a passage here from uh, Chuck Swindoll in his book, an old book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. I wish I had Chuck Swindoll's voice because we would just all go out and do this then. But here's how he comments on this particular story. On the basis of this magnificent story, I feel there are times when extravagant gifts are not only appropriate, they are occasionally essential. So are extravagant purchases and extravagant expressions of love. Extravagant memorials need to be erected. Extravagant art needs to be appreciated. Yes, even extravagant displays of our devotion to the living Lord. I believe there are times when God, as it were, shouts with a smile, break a vase. Yeah. Uh, Lord, we're sitting here in Fairbanks, Alaska, reading the story of this woman whom you said we would read about. And we would know of her beautiful moment of lavish generosity and devotion poured out to you. She broke this vase and poured out its contents that were so costly and rich. Just as you, God, the councils of heaven, reached out and broke your own son and poured out grace upon grace for us. God, I pray that we would give thought to our lives and to what you have given us. And to how we would steward it. May we show our devotion to you. Not in conservatism. But in a lavish display of devotion. May we be willing to break a vase. If you would so lead. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.